please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, where we're continuing our series titled Living Hope. And as you're turning there, I don't know about you, but I find it difficult to go from doing one thing to doing something very different, like going from lively fellowship to jumping right into a Bible study. It just, it just takes time for me to make that transition. And so to help with this, I'm, I've got a little warm-up exercise for you, a little bit of a brain game. And so here's, here's how it works. I'm calling it Name the Subject. And so if you're, if you're returning late, you don't get to play. <laughs> but here's how it works. I'm going to give you five words that have something in common. And what they have in common is that they are in the same paragraph of an article. And based on those five words, I want you to tell me what you think the subject of the paragraph is. Okay, so simple enough. I'll give you the words and then you can, you can try to name the subject. So here we go. The five words are rejoice, overjoyed, glory, blessed, and praise. And so there we have these words, and, and based on that, I mean, what do you think this paragraph is talking about? Maybe like a, a wedding reception, a, a birth announcement, maybe somebody like won a whole bunch of money or got a promotion. I mean, what do you think this is talking about? Give me your thoughts. What's the subject? Persecution. Persecution. <laughs> What a gloom and doom guy. <laughs> Persecution. Well, I mean, what, what do you think this is? Suffering. Suffering. <laughs> wow. Welcome to Riverside Community Church. <laughs> oh, Rejoice, overjoy, glory, bless, pray. Well, the subject is suffering. <laughs> How is that even possible? I mean, it, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? We would expect to see suffering surrounded by words like bitterness, regret, affliction, scorn, misery. But that's not God's will in the life of a Christian. And so with this in mind, the title of the message this morning is this. It's joyful suffering. That seems like an oxymoron, but it's not in God's economy. Three parts to the outline. We're in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. And we're going to look at first at our reaction in verses 12 and 13. And then our reminder in 14 through 18. And finally, our reliance in verse 19. So those are the three parts to the outline. It's a pretty short passage, but it's packed with content. And so I want to start by reading through the text. Begins in verse 12 of chapter 4. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. 
For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This is the word of God. So, Consider first the the context of this particular letter that was penned by Peter, but written by God. It was written at a time when Emperor Nero was the most powerful political figure in the world. And he was on a tirade against the Christian church. He blamed them for burning down the city of Rome. And he killed tens of thousands of these Christians. And many others that he didn't kill, he drove them from their homes. The very first verse in this letter says that they were scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's an area of more than five times the size of the state of Illinois. It's, it's an area 600 miles across and 300 miles tall. A huge area. And imagine being driven from your home, from your family, your farm, your source of income. Think of all the pain and inconvenience that would come along with that. My wife and I went camping for just one night a couple weeks ago. And I was amazed at how much stuff we had to bring just to survive one night outdoors. There were a lot of necessities like our tent, an air mattress, a battery pump to air it up, sleeping bags, pillows, folding chairs, sunscreen, sundries, and on and on and on. Thankfully, we didn't have to worry about food or restrooms or showers because those were all there on site. Otherwise, we would have had to bring even more stuff for one night outdoors. I think we had about 120 pounds worth of stuff. Now, imagine these early Christians being driven from their homes. And here's the thing, they still had all of the normal day-to-day trials that you and I face. Things like health issues, aging parents, young children, relational challenges, and on and on and on. Only their trials would have been magnified by their circumstances. Where do you find food in the middle of nowhere? How do you keep it fresh? What do you do when you have a headache or when you throw your back out? What do you do when you're out of money? These people knew what it was like to suffer in a way that most of us can barely imagine. And yet, it's into this environment, this context, that Peter writes these inspired words. And they include the words rejoice, overjoyed, glory, blessed, and praise. And... I have to admit, the idea of joyful suffering, it just seems crazy on its face. I think I've gotten better at handling trials, painful trials, but I can't say that I'm joyful in the midst of them. I think my own tendency is to just kind of clam up, to be quiet, to hunker down, to soldier through it and wait until it's over. I don't think the people around me would say that I'm always joyful. I'm not. I'm working on it. How about you? Are you joyful? 
Are you joyful when you face painful trials? And I know many of your trials as I look around the room this morning. Deep, painful trials. But do you rejoice? And if not, do you want to? Do you want to experience blessing and be filled with praise? I do. I do. And here's the thing. Rejoicing. It won't happen by changing the nature of our trials, but by changing our perspective on our trials. That's going to be a key word this morning, our perspective. So let's start by considering, first of all, our response to these painful trials. We'll find it in the text in verses 12 and 13. It says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So this, these two verses contain a don't and a do. It says, do not be surprised. See, a wrong response would be shock and disbelief that something like this could be happening to us. Now, it's not talking about a petty little trial. It's talking about a painful trial. The ESV translates it a fiery trial. And I like that because the root word for painful or fiery means ignition, like a source of fire. And so a fiery trial, it's, it's used, this word's used to describe uh, the smelting of ore, where they heat it up to the melting point and, and melt that ore so they can extract it from the other minerals. Now, in this text, I just want to say up front, it deals primarily with suffering in the context of persecution, but the same principles also apply to other types of suffering that we face day to day. So when we encounter a fiery, painful trial, we're not to be surprised. Our response shouldn't be, I can't believe this is happening to me. Is God really in control? Does he know this is happening? Does he care? That would be a wrong response. And we often have the wrong response because we have the wrong perspective. I heard about a college student who wrote a letter home to her parents. And she wrote, Dear Mom and Dad, I guess you've heard by now that the dorm burned down. We were all in the basement smoking pot. And I guess someone set the dorm on fire. But no one was hurt. And we got most of our belongings out in time. Oh, and I'm getting married soon. You see, I have to because I'm going to have a baby. You'll meet Bob soon. He has a really cool Harley. <laughs> the stunned parents, they kept reading and it said, well, actually, I'm not pregnant and I don't know anyone named Bob and I'm not going to get married. There was no fire and I wouldn't know what to do with pot, but I did flunk chemistry and I just wanted you to be able to put it into perspective. <laughs> Perspective is important, amen? <laughs> and when it comes to painful trials, we need to have the right perspective. We need to have a biblical perspective. And that's what we want to look for this morning in this text. So is God really in control? Does he know this is happening? Does he care? Well, that's what David wondered when he wrote Psalm 13, which Dan preached on just two weeks ago. David said, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemies triumph over me? Do you hear the pain in that? The anguish? In other words, he's saying, are you really in control? Do you even know this is happening to me? Do you care? And the answer is, yes, he knows. Yes, he cares. Yes, he's in control. Notice the phrase in verse 12, as though some strange thing were happening to you. The word translated happening has a meaning, literal meaning of to fall by chance. In other words, something that is happening randomly or arbitrarily or accidentally. If you've ever been surprised by a painful trial and felt that it must be outside of God's control, then we need a new perspective. And here here is a thought I want you to hold on to and I want to hold on to. No trial will ever come your way by chance, but only by God's careful, watchful, purposeful consent. Never by chance. Never. And when he does allow it to come your way, he has a good purpose for you in it. He's using it for your good. Think of this. Designer trials. Designer trials. Custom-tailored to meet my needs, to bring about my good and God's glory. Designer trials. In Psalm 13, David's sorrow didn't turn to rejoicing by a changing of his trials. It turned to rejoicing by a changing of his perspective. And you see that at the end of the psalm. So think back to one of your most painful trials. Maybe it's going on right now. Do you see God's hand in it? I mean, do you see that trial and think, God's at work. He's in this. He's in control. He cares. Sometimes I tend to see it as evil at work. This isn't God's work. This is evil. But even in the case of Job, I think that man endured more fiery trials than any other human in Scripture. Even... Even that man only went through those trials when God allowed the devil to do it. He he allowed it. And in the case of Joseph, his brothers meant evil against him, but God was at work using it for good. So if we can rethink our trials and see God's hand in it, then I think it'll be easier to accept them and find rest in the midst of them. God picked this trial for me, for my good, for my growth. So we're not to be surprised. He knows, he cares, he's in control. Rather, what we're to do, verse 13, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. We're not to be surprised, we're to rejoice My heart's desire is to be like Jesus. I want to think like him. I want to react to everything the way he would react to it. I want to do the things he would do. I mean, that's the deepest desire of my heart. I'm not there. But I want to be, and and I know many of you do too. 
So here's some more perspective. When we suffer for doing good, we are being like Jesus. Because Jesus suffered for doing good. We're participating in the sufferings of Christ, as the text says. But why should this be something to rejoice in? Why would we rejoice? A couple reasons that I see in this. First of all, we can rejoice because sharing in the sufferings of Christ brings us into a deeper fellowship with Christ. Let me read you the words that Paul penned to the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 10. He said, I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. A deeper fellowship with Christ. There's a special fellowship when we share in the sufferings of Christ. Now, here's my feeble attempt to illustrate this. Um, I've always enjoyed the sport of IndyCar racing. It started when I was a little boy watching ABC's Wide World of Sports with my dad, and we'd watch the Indy 500. And then when I was an adult, and Deborah and I moved to Albuquerque, and I was working there, one of the race teams had a shop just down the road from my office, and their driver was Al Unser Jr. The Uncers were all based in Albuquerque. And sometimes the techs would come into our shop and they'd get cable for their communications in that. And so I loved it. We did tours of their shop. And one year we got to go as guests to our first IndyCar race, as guests of Gallus Racing and Al Unser Jr. And so it was, our, the race was in Long Beach, and I'll never forget it. And, and by the way, the Long Beach race is this afternoon. <laughs> I'm recording it after my nap. I'm, I'm looking forward to watching it. It's the only sport that I really follow closely. And I'm fascinated by it because these cars are amazing to me. They're, they have some of the same aerodynamics as an as a airplane, only they go faster than many airplanes. They have a wing of sorts underneath them. If they're going 100 miles an hour, they could stick upside down to the ceiling. They have that much downforce. So this whole thing fascinates me. And so I've always loved these indie cars. Well, one year for Father's Day, Deborah, this was a number of years ago, she bought me a ticket to the Mario Andretti racing experience. And so you get to don the suit and the radio communications gear and the helmet, and you get to drive an Indy car around the Chicagoland Speedway for 10 laps. Now, this is like Dave Boyer getting to pitch at Yankee Stadium, <laughs> or Brad Skull getting to ride on the Tour de France circuit. For me, this, this was it. I got to drive an Indy car around Chicago Land Speedway. I was thrilled. And it's the same track that my favorite drivers would race on. Now, I wasn't going as fast as they do. The timing and scoring said that I, my top speed was just over 169 miles an hour. I think they exaggerated a little bit, but it was as fast as I needed to go, especially since you're sitting like two inches off the ground. It was, and even at that speed, the G-forces were incredible. Now, the IndyCar drivers, when they race at Chicagoland, they go over 220 miles an hour. But I got to experience what that was like. I got to see what they see as we drove through the tunnel under the track and we came up and pulled into pit lane. I got to feel what they feel as I had my hands on that wheel at 169 miles an hour and my family goes zinging by. <laughs> it was awesome. And 
I have a much greater appreciation for what they do. So I got to share in this experience, and it made me feel closer to these IndyCar drivers. I kind of thought I was one in my head, you know. It kind of went through my head for a little while. It was hard to get back in my Corolla and drive home. <laughs> I was probably a little heavy on the gas. But, but anyway, I shared in their experience. And it's very similar, I think, when we share in the sufferings of Christ, albeit to a much lesser degree. We can relate to him in a deeper, more meaningful way because we feel a little bit of what he felt. Amen? We can have a greater appreciation for what he did. And there's this special closeness that comes from sharing in his suffering. And it's not just imagined. It's a supernatural closeness that we're going to talk about in just a moment. So when we suffer for the sake of Christ, he actually draws near to us in this beautiful, supernatural way. So we can rejoice in that these painful trials bring us into a deeper, closer, more meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. That's number one. And we can also rejoice because sharing in the sufferings of Christ brings us an even greater reward in heaven. Do you believe that? Let me read you what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because... Great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you share in the sufferings of Christ, there is a greater reward in heaven. God sees, he knows, he cares, he's in control. So our text says we'll begin to realize that reward when Christ is revealed. Now, his glory is revealed in heaven, but it's not fully revealed on earth. It's speaking about his return, his second coming. And it's that point that we'll begin to experience this. And and it says we will be overjoyed. Many of you know Walt Barrett, our former senior pastor, and his wife, Jane. And many of you have been praying for them because they've been going through some health challenges. Walt was diagnosed with a brain tumor that's growing but appears to be benign but has some complications. Jane is in the midst of an ongoing 15-year struggle with lymphoma. Recently, they found that there is a tumor behind her heart wrapped around her aorta. And so they've been praying. And in one of the email updates that Walt sent to me, This is what he had to say in response to these trials. He said, we are well content with where we are on this journey. We have learned over the years to keep our eyes fixed on him, the one who is good and does good, Psalm 119.68. We know he is trustworthy and we willingly, joyfully trust in his sovereignty in his sovereign, wise, and loving ways for our good and for his glory. That's a man writing those words in the midst of a deep, painful trial. That's the right response to painful trials. It's a response that's been learned over many years, as Walt said. And it's a response that I hope to keep learning. See, I want to respond like that. 
Because that's what God's will is for each one of us. And I know you want to learn to respond like that too. So that's our response. Let's look at our reminder in verses 14 through 18. And it's a series of if statements beginning in verse 14. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So here, this speaks again of this closeness that we experience when we suffer for Christ. When you're going through a painful trial, the Spirit of God himself rests upon you, it says. What an awesome experience. Because he strengthens you in a very special way during those times. And you have a unique awareness of his glory. Stephen, the first martyr, experienced both of these. Listen to Acts 7.55. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The Spirit of God and the glory of God rests upon you in the midst of trials. The Apostle Paul captured it in this way. He said in 2 Corinthians 12, But he, Jesus, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Then Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You catch that? He delights in these things. When we're persecuted for Christ's sake, he draws near to us and his power rests on us. And he makes us strong and we experience his glory in a very special way. Let's add that to our perspective on suffering. And then the next reminder, verse 15. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. So Peter reminds us there's lots of suffering going on. Not all of it is for Christ. Our suffering needs to be for the right reason. If, if we suffer for the wrong reason, for being a murderer, thief, a criminal, or even a meddler, in that case, the suffering is God's judgment upon us, often delivered through the authorities he's placed over us. They're God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer, whether that's a murderer. I've only known a few of them in my life. A thief, I've known plenty of them. A criminal, I've known a lot of meddlers. <laughs> you know what a meddler is? It's someone who inserts themselves into somebody else's business and just kind of stirs stuff up. Whether it's at work, in, in, out in the public places, at home, even in churches, meddlers. Isn't that surprising that it mentions meddlers here? Because we could easily check off, no, nah, I don't murder. I, I haven't stolen anything in a long time. I'm not a criminal. Oh, a meddler. Yeah. If we suffer for those things, well, then we deserve the punishment that we get. That's God's judgment. We shouldn't. We shouldn't be suffering for those things. However, verse 16 says, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. What name? Christian. Christian. That name, it means of the party of Christ 
or belonging to Christ. And in Acts 11, verse 26 tells us the term Christian was used first in Antioch. And the people of Antioch had this habit of assigning derisive nicknames to people. Like put-downs, chops. And so this was meant to be a put-down. Oh, you're one of those Christians. You belong to that Christ guy. It would be like today, somebody saying, you're a Jesus freak. You know, it was meant to be a put-down. But the Christians liked it. They began to embrace this term. They said, we like that. Yeah, we do belong to that Christ guy. We are of the party of Christ. And so they adopted it and loved it. So verse 16 says, if you suffer as a Christian, one who belongs to Christ, you should not be ashamed, but we should feel honored that we bear the name of Christ. Why should you feel honored? Because it is an honor. It's an honor. We're suffering. We're on the same team. We're on the same side as the king of kings, the creator of the universe, the redeemer of our souls. We're on his side. Whose side are you on? It's an honor to suffer for the name of Christ. Now, in Acts chapter 5, not long after Pentecost, probably just a few days, the apostles were preaching the gospel and performing all these miraculous signs, and people were flocking in crowds to see and to hear this. And the Jewish leaders got jealous of the crowds. And so they decided they're going to lock these guys up. So they locked up the apostles. But that night, an angel of the Lord comes and unlocks and lets them out. Daybreak comes. There they are out there preaching again. They told them, don't preach that Jesus anymore. But there they are. They're back there doing it. So now they're really fired up, the Jewish leaders. And they wanted to kill them. But cooler heads prevailed. They said, well, we'll just flog them. Flogging was a beating so severe that it was often lethal. So they drugged the apostles in and they flogged them. And what was the apostles' response to this? Chapter 5 of Acts in verse 40 and 41 says, The apostles left rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. The name of Christ. And it says they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. They left rejoicing. It was an honor to suffer for the name of Christ. They belong to the party of Christ. So how's that for perspective? That, see, we got to get that in our minds. We got to change the way we think about this, this suffering, these trials that we're going through. He's in control. He's on my side. I'm his child. He cares. I'm his prized possession. This trial was handpicked for me. Got to keep that in mind. The next reminder, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome? What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, this isn't talking about final judgment, like on the like in the end of time. And it's not talking about condemnation for Christians. It's talking about purification, discipline. Let me read you from Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 7 says, endure hardships, painful trials, as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? 
And down in verses 10 and 11, it says, Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. This judgment for the church is a judgment. It's a purification. It's a disciplining of his people. We sing the song, Refiner's Fire. Refiner's Fire. My heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for you, Lord, ready to do your will. How does that happen? How do we become more holy? How do we become set apart to do his will? Refiner's fire, painful trial. That's just a nice way of saying really painful trials. Though, and I like this whole imagery of refiner's fire because, first of all, it's talking about fiery trials, source of ignition. And the way they would refine gold back in the day, they would take the ore and they would crush it up into smaller pieces and smaller pieces and they'd break it apart. And then they would put it in a a smelting pot where they would heat it up to the point where the ore began to melt and the other minerals began to melt. And then the gold, which is much heavier, would sink to the bottom and all of the other impurities would be forced to the top. They'd float. And so the refiner would take and he would skim what's called the dross, the impurities off the surface. So he skims that off and keeps applying heat and applying heat, skims more off until he could see his reflection in the gold. Then it was pure. At that point, it was pure gold, fully refined. And I love the imagery of this of this process. It's a beautiful picture. God, the, the great refiner, bringing fiery trials and skimming away the impurities until he can see his reflection in us. Isn't that cool? Job, again, probably experiences refiner's fire more than anyone else in the Bible. And listen to what he says in, in chapter 23, verse 10. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold, pure, refined. That was his perspective. God used those terribly painful trials to refine Job into something as pure as gold. You'll never become mature in your faith without facing painful trials. If you're looking for the shortcut, the way around, we're not going to find it. Peter, the man writing this letter, tried to find a shortcut for Jesus. Jesus said, I'm going into Jerusalem. They're going to crucify me. Never, Lord. No, don't don't go. Avoid the suffering. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. That wasn't his plan. That wasn't the way to the glory. And so we're never going to become mature in our faith apart from painful trials. This is the process God has ordained to refine us. So the fiery trials we endure right now are for our purification. But Peter asks, if judgment begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Well, the fire that they see won't be fire of purification. It'll be fire of punishment and condemnation. 
So Peter reminds us of one more thing in verse 18. He says, and if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what would become of the ungodly and the sinner? Good question. Now, salvation is not hard in the sense of having to earn it. We don't earn it. It's a free gift. That's the easy part. Christ paid the price for our salvation. He took the penalty. But the hard part comes in that once we're saved, we're called to follow Christ. And that involves sacrifice and even suffering. Jesus said we have to take up our cross daily and follow him. And so... If believers face fiery trials now, which are for their purification, imagine the inferno that awaits unbelievers who reject his grace, who reject his love. That will be for their condemnation. Revelation 20 describes this inferno as a, as a lake of fire, a place of torment day and night forever and ever and ever. Anyone whose name is not found in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. They have rejected God and his mercy and his love and his righteousness. So we shouldn't lose sight of this. This is an important part of our perspective as well. So these are reminders that were given. And then finally, the last verse, let's look at our reliance in verse 19. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Now the key word in this verse is commit. They should commit themselves to their faithful creator. Or the ESV says entrust themselves. Entrust their souls to a faithful creator. So this this word commit or entrust comes from the banking industry. And the, and the idea, what it means is to, do, to, to deposit for safekeeping. So I'm not going to keep my life savings under my mattress, <laughs> right? I'm going to deposit it. I'm going to commit it to a bank where it's safe. As believers, when we're facing painful trials, we're to commit ourselves to the faithful God of creation. So... This too is what Jesus did. Remember what he said as he hung on the cross? Some of his last words. He said, Father, into your hands I commit myself. I am trusting my soul to your eternal keeping. And that's to be our attitude as well. Notice that verse 19 doesn't say those who suffer should commit themselves to God. I mean, it kind of does, but not exactly. It says they should commit themselves to their faithful creator. When you read and study scripture, pay attention to the details. He could have said God. He didn't say God. Why didn't he say God? He said faithful creator. I think there's a point, a reason behind that. Every word of scripture is inspired. Every yot and tittle, as they say, every little accent and punctuation mark. Here's what I think. First, it's a reminder that we're made by God and we're made for his purpose. And so we should not hesitate to commit ourselves to him. But even more than that, I think that it's a reminder that if God is able to design and orchestrate all of creation and to hold all things together by his power, don't you think he can see us through whatever trial we face? The God of all creation. He's 
faithful. He doesn't abandon us. We can trust ourselves to him for safekeeping. We can commit ourselves to him. We can rely on him. He is our reliance. I mentioned Walt and Jane Barrett and the, the health challenges they're facing. In a later update, I asked for Walt's permission to share this with you because it's kind of private, but, but, it's, but in, it's, he said it's not copyrighted. It's nothing that, uh, that we're ashamed of. Walt said this. He said, we have seen time and time again over the now many years that God is ever and always faithful kind and worthy of our complete trust. The days of our lives are in his sovereign, trustworthy hands. As the psalmist declares in 119.68, good you are and good you do. He always and only does what is good, what is for our good and for his glory. It truly doesn't get any better than that, he wrote. Again, the attitude of a man and, a, and his wife in the midst of painful trials. Walt and Jane have committed themselves to their faithful creator. They're trusting in that. They know they're safe with him and they've set a great example for us. What we sang just a little earlier, we sang this song, It Is Well With My Soul. You probably heard the story behind that. Matt alluded to it briefly. Horatio Spafford was a successful Chicago businessman, and he was a, a devout Christian in the late 1800s. He was a close friend of Deal Mooding. But his fortunes evaporated in the great Chicago fire of 1871. He had invested heavily in real estate along Lake Michigan's shoreline, and it burned up. And just prior to that, his son had passed away. And so wanting a bit of a respite for his wife and his four daughters and wanting to help Moody with an outreach in England, he, Spafford, he planned a European trip for his family in 1873. But due to an unexpected last-minute business development, he had to remain in Chicago while his wife and four daughters went ahead on the SS Ville du Havre. And he planned to follow them in just a few days. Well, four days into the crossing, the Ville du Havre collided with the Scottish, with the Scottish ship, the Loch Ern, And it sunk within 12 minutes. 226 of the 313 passengers on board were lost. Spafford's wife Anna was found unconscious, clinging to a floating piece of debris. But she survived. His four daughters were lost. Nine days later, when Anna Spafford arrived in Wales, she wired her husband, saved alone. Listen to this perspective. She later said to a fellow passenger and pastor, God gave me four daughters. Now they have been taken from me. Someday I will understand why. On hearing the news, Mr. Spafford booked passage on the next available ship and he left to join his grieving wife. And with the ship about four days out, the captain called Spafford to his cabin. And he told them they were over the place where his children went down. And it was on this voyage that Horatio Spafford penned these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well. With my soul. Can you say that in the midst of your painful trials?
Now, I don't want to in any way minimize the pain of people facing trials. They're, they're, they're hard. They're hurtful. That's why they're called painful trials. They're called fiery trials. We don't minimize that. But we can, despite the pain, experience joy in the midst of them. Let me just recap this with some of the main points as, as we wrap up. First of all, rejoicing. Did I pass it up? No. Rejoicing. It won't happen by changing our trials, but by changing our perspective on our trials. We need a biblical perspective. We need to look at it the way God looks at it, not the way our sinful, broken human nature feels about it. We need to run to truth. No trial will ever come your way by chance, but only by God's careful, watchful, purposeful consent. He knows. He cares. He's in control. Participating in the sufferings of Christ brings us into a deeper fellowship with Christ. It also brings us a greater reward in heaven. When we go through these trials, the spirit of glory and of God rests on us. It gives us strength and a special awareness of God's glory. When we suffer for being a Christian, we should feel honored that we bear his name, not ashamed. And we need to realize that God is using these trials for our purification. It's refiner's fire. It has a good purpose in our lives. And finally, we need to commit ourselves to our faithful creator. Trusting in his sovereign care, just like Jesus did. If he can design and orchestrate all of creation and hold it all together, he can see us through any trial that we might face. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we don't like trials. They're hard and they hurt. We'd like to avoid them. We'd like an easier way. But that's coming from our limited broken human flesh. So we ask that you would help us to see your greater purpose in these trials. Help us to find joy in the midst of them. Help us to be able to rejoice. Help us to enjoy sweet fellowship with you as we go through these trials, God. We love you. And we trust in your presence and in your power. We trust ourselves to your sovereign care. And so it's in the name of our Lord Jesus that we pray. Amen.